Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. It's two short screencasts each week between 5 and 15 minutes. Elixir Sips currently consists of over two hours of densely packed videos, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of software development consultancy Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. Hello, and welcome to Mostly Erlang, episode number 19 on Elixir. I'm Brian Hunter. I'm guest hosting for Zach. And we are uh, joined with Simon and Fred, our regulars. And we also have Joe Armstrong, Eric Merritt, Jose Valim, and Robert Verding. And so if we could go around and do a bit of intros, I've introduced myself. So Brian Hunter out of Nashville, Tennessee, Firefly Logic. And how about Simon and Fred? I'm the Simon. I'm the co-chair of the O'Reilly Open Source Conference. I'm looking for ways to get functional programming further out in the world to a lot more people. And so I've written Introducing Erlang and Introducing Elixir. Okay, great. Uh, Fred? I'm Fred Ebert. Um I'm working with Heroku right now on the routing team, and I'm the author of Learn Use of Erlang for Great Good. Cool. Okay, and, and Joe? Uh, I'm Joe Armstrong. I wrote uh, Programming Erlang, and I wrote the first Erlang compiler, Rob and I developed Erlang. <laughs> and and Eric? So I'm Eric Merritt. I wrote, well, one of three authors of Erlang and OTP in Action, and I've been in the community for a long time. Cool. And uh, Jose? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jose Valin. I'm creator of the of Elixir, and I'm also co-founder of Platform Attack, a uh, consultancy in Brazil. Cool. And Robert? Hi, I'm Robert Verning. I, well, was one of the co-founders of Erlang together with Joe and Mike, and now I'm working for Erlang Solutions. Okay, perfect. So we we have a panel uh, of, of folks that have implemented languages on the Erlang VM, and so uh, this is going to be a real treat here. But I'd like to start off with uh, Jose and just kind of get sort of the elevator pitch or the, the summary of, of what Elixir is. Uh, well, uh, that depends how long is the elevator trip, but uh, <laughs> I think the the really short one it's it's easy. Uh, Elixir is a language that runs on their virtual machine, and and that's kind of the the main focus of it. I say frequently that Elixir only exists because Erlang exists, the virtual machine exists, and and that's our strongest asset. So it's about running our code uh, in the Erlang virtual machine. And we, of course, we add our own twist. Uh, we focus a little bit on having some productivity related tools uh, or flexibilities in the language and also extensibility. But we can expand on those as we go. I'm really curious uh, about your background and how you came to, to this point. Like, how did you decide uh, to write a new language on the Erlang VM? Your your background is a committer on the Rails project, and, and you can kind of just fill us about the trajectory. I think that's a really interesting story. Okay. Uh, uh, Joe, when did you write the, the first, the, the Erlang book with pragmatic programmers? Oh, that wasn't the first Erlang book, but that was, ooh, I'd have to think about two. 2007, something like that. Yeah, August 2007, I think is the. Yeah, yeah it, it about that time. It was when like we I started hearing more about Erlang because pragmatic programmers is very influential in the in the Ruby community. And I had an idea about Erlang. I I I've 
glanced over the book, but it was uh, when I read uh, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks from Bruce Tate, which is an excellent book. And then uh, I read the book and it's talking about all those different languages, uh, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Clojure, and often comparing a little bit their concurrency models and their communities, everything, right? And after I read the book, I had all those options in front of me and Erlang was just shining, right? I was like, oh, this is great. This yes. is where I want to I want to be building software in the future. I that's how I came to it because it was already at the point was uh, 2010. It was already at the point where I was already having a lot of issues with making Rails, for example, try to save. It was just a pain, and I knew <laughs> that uh, I want. Uh, I I knew concurrency was becoming more and more important. Right, and I didn't want to to spend like the next five or ten years of my life trying to fix concurrency issues instead of writing the code I want to write. So, and then things kind of fit together, and I say, okay, I want to use that. I started using it more and more and more, and um, there was some, and I really enjoyed everything. But there were some things that I felt for me they are necessary when I'm writing my software. Like one of those is. Uh, a nice way of have metaprogramming. Uh, the other is having uh, extensibility tools, which is which we have the most important in Elixir. I would say they are protocols. Uh, so that's kind of how everything came together, and that's exactly how I even uh, put the goals of the language together later. Right. So if if you when it, mm. like, what are the goals of the language? We say that we have three goals which is compatibility because we want to be compatible with the Erlang virtual machine and the whole ecosystem. That's kind of uh, the point of the, the language and it's productivity, which it can be in many ways, right? And it's hard for you to to measure productivity in general, let's just say like uh, having a small language core. So uh, in the in Elixir, you, the, the language core is very small and we rely a lot of macros to build the language. So Case receive all those things. They are macros, and I suspect it's probably the same for list flavored Erlang and Joxa. They they are just macros, and you can you and they are nothing special about them. They are implemented with the language construct. It's not something special in the parser in the grammar. So it, it means that the language was construed was, uh, was built with most of the language construct. So you can get those same constructs and take it elsewhere to your domain, for example. So you can create domain-specific languages and that makes you more productive, right? So that's our second goal. And the third one is actually extensibility. I have like protocols, which is a way for me to write uh, some code and you can later extend it with your own uh, data structures, with your own types, right? Uh, Haskell, people call it kind of type classes. We protocols, we took them the naming from Clojure. Uh, and yeah, and that's it. Hmm. Sort of the genealogy of the language, then uh, people say, uh, oh, okay, it's it's Ruby on the Erlang VM. And that's, of course, a super gross simplification uh, because it's not just Ruby and it's not just Clojure. I mean, there's a, you, you've been uh, really out there searching. Uh, yeah, so... So it's funny because the, my first attempt and uh, at, at building the language, I kind of knew what I wanted to have. Like I knew I wanted to have like metaprogramming, and I knew I wanted to have like some kind of polymorphism, some kind of dynamic dispatch. But I didn't know how exactly. 
And, and that's when I started to search and see things around and how uh, other technologies, they were solving those problems. And so that's why we have a bunch of stuff from Clojure because uh, Clojure is a dynamic language as well. So even for like Haskell called them like type classes and Solange calls them this, but I went with the Clojure naming because it's closer to what we have and uh, what we want to implement. And, gotcha. uh, and I would say that the, the, those languages that I said are the main influences, uh, Ruby, um, Clojure, and, and Erlang. Right. Okay. So, and, and I think it resembles, uh, and people say it's like Ruby and a virtual machine, but that's because a lot of the syntax and, and that's what makes people think a lot that, but, uh, it's mostly the syntax, a lot of the, the semantics, they are, you know, it's Erlang virtual machine and uh, a bunch of the mechanisms we have, uh, and the names we use, we, we get a lot from, from closure and it's, really in a lot of places. So we have protocols, we have the the way our... So on the nice thing about protocols, so I'm talking about protocols, right? So what are like the benefits of protocols? Some of the benefits is that we have an enum module that knows how to enumerate over a bunch of data structures, right? So if you want to map a dictionary, you use the enum module. You want to map a list, you use the enum module. So it's very nice because you don't need to know about all those uh, 10 different APIs, one for each data structure. You have one API, one module that you can use uh, to work with many of them, and you can plug any data structure you want as long as it implements a protocol, right? And even the, the implementation of the protocol in this case, it's very similar to the closure one. Uh, so we really got a bunch of stuff from from that side too. Uh, I have a question off of that off that thread to throw at Robert uh, on. So I've watched Robert for years on the question of syntax and semantics. Uh, on Twitter, he has to you know he has to jump in over and over because people say they, they get this confused. So could you talk to us just a bit about language syntax and language semantics? Can we could we get our little uh, Cliff's notes? Um. Well, it, it, how do you mean? I, I mean, yeah, I mean, syntax like, and semantics are very different. Normally, you've had to do it in 140 characters, and so you get more than that now. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, yeah. No, um, so my view, well, syntax and semantics are very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, syntax, what it looks like, semantics, what it means. Um, I, I don't have tr- generally don't have trouble with syntax, so I, I, I don't have that problem. So if I'm learning a new language, the problem, the problem is not the syntax, that that I find easy. The problem, of course, is the semantics. What it all mm-hmm. means, right? So, so that, that's that's sort of my view on, say, running languages on top of another machine, yes. a virtual machine. Um, you would do it for the semantics, or if you could add something new, or which is not in, not in the existing language. So that that's my view on that. That's I tend to get worked up when people talk about <laughs> syntax because I, I don't see a syntax problem. Um, yeah. Right. It's a, it it, is a lot of, it's a lot of the sort of uh, bottles that have been thrown uh, over the, and it seems like such a goofy thing, but, uh, but it seems to have bothered a lot of folks. It's interesting. uh, Just the role with Elixir, I think, where the people that had grumbled about that side of it and they couldn't get past it, they seem to be embracing the language in a funny way, which is, uh, uh, is, is great on a side. And it makes you wonder is like, was it really that important? (laughs) Uh, that's what I mean. I don't think so. So, from my point of view, the Elixir syntax, I don't, I don't, I don't see it solving a problem. So, I don't see the problem. Mm-hmm. I, I think 
but then again, I think it does manage to well, it has introduced a few features which are quite nice. For example, um, it has improved macros. Yes, enormously over the, over the standard Erlang syntax. It, it has a much better macro package. It has a macro package actually used to do things right. And so, what I find more, the type of things I'm interested in Elixir, and also a, num- a number of new, well, say, features or things that's introduced which Erlang doesn't have, like the protocols which Jose mentioned. Yes, that I find is interesting. So, from the syntax point of view, I don't see the point. From the other other features it introduces, that that's where I, where I think the interesting bit is. Mm. I, I have a question about that, and I think anybody can chime in. But I always had the impression that Erlang having a foreign syntax kind of helps uh, forget all the preconception of the baggage you had, so that you can just jump in the language uh, mm. from a fresh point of view so that you don't get bugged up on semantics from other languages you knew before. Well, that, that was and my I, experience. Yeah, um, and, and, and this is something that I'm wondering about uh, in Elixir because it looks a lot more like Ruby or any kind of other language that people have used before that are not Prolog or Erlang. And I asked myself the question, like, is it faster to get started with it because you're familiar but then once you're up to speed or almost up to speed, do you get to run into more walls as the expectations you carried over from different uh, platforms or languages no, I, I, start slowing you down into the semantics themselves? So actually, we're, I wonder about that as well, Jose. Like um, Elixir has somewhat similar-ish syntax to, to say, Ruby, right? But the semantics are completely different. And um, I know I'm being on the Elixir mailing list and, uh, and watching on IRC and this kind of thing, there's... There's this point where people come into the uh, into the language, right, with their with their um, with their Ruby background or their maybe their Python background or what have you, with a certain set of expectations. And you know, and for the first five minutes, those expectations might hold, but then very very quickly get get into this point where <laughs> where their expectations of what things should be and what things actually are are completely different. Yes, and they have to run through this kind of impedance mismatch between reality and their internal worldview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had I've had a few conversations with people who got into just that, and the story had a happier ending than you might expect. Um, they did have that mismatch, and it was painful for a bit. But then they found that the real problem wasn't the mismatch with Elixir; it was returning to Ruby. So mm. they were mm. they were we we lured them to the dark side. Yeah, hop in, Joe. Yeah, no, I I think. The- Problem is slightly different. That um, I agree with Robert about about syntax. Um, there, there seem to be a couple of phases in in, in doing things. And the, the, the first phase when you learn programming languages is just getting the commas and, and brackets in the right places, and and uh, that that goes over very soon. I think. I mean, that just gets into your spine, and and, and it's something I forget all the time. I mean, I I, I nip backwards before Erlang and, and and JavaScript and C and and, and all, all sorts of things. And in fact, when I just flip between languages very quickly. I, I, I find myself putting semicolons at the end of lines of Erlang and, and, and doing things like, oh, no, silly me, it's in Erlang, it's a comma there. That goes over very quickly, and, and you internalize it. I think the difficult... Then, then there are things that you think are going to be problems that aren't. Okay, so, so in Erlang, everybody says, well, this notion of, of, of single assignment variables is going to be a problem, but in practice it isn't, because once you've told people... you. If you've got x equals 1, you can't say x equals x plus 1, okay? You, so, so what do you do? You, we, say, we just introduce a new variable. We say x1 is 
x plus one. No problem. They 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 get that, and it's not a problem. And then recursion. It's sort of they've heard the word, and they think, oh, recursion's going to be a problem. But say, okay, look, just just write it like this, and it'll work. It works, and they don't think about it. So where are the problems? Well, the problems have come when they start to design their programs, because if they're used to to doing object-oriented programming, they're used to breaking down the problem into objects. So they're, they're looking at Erlang and saying, well, what do I do? Where are the objects? And if you're building things in Erlang, you've got to look at the concurrency structure. You've got to say, where are the processes? But they're not used to processes. You see, they don't know what processes are. And that's where the problems come. It's not the functional bit. It's not the variables of of single assignment bindings. It's a concurrency that's a problem, and it's the mm. failure model that's a problem. That's, that's because that's completely different. So there was a, a very good um, thread on the Erlang mailing list of a, and it was called something like, I mm, can't remember, it was, about, it was about sort of how do I write a model view controller in Erlang for a game, right? And yeah. somebody had come from, I don't know, Ruby or Python or PHP or something, but he'd come from a single-threaded language, and he's writing a multi-user game. So how do you write a multi-user game in a single-threaded language? Well, each person in the game has state. So what you do is you, you, when one person is active, you retrieve the state from a database, you perform a computation, and then you put it back in the database, and then you go and look at the next thing. So you're emulating the concurrency yourself. So when he wanted to write a, a, a game in Erlang, the first thing he did is said, well, I need to interface Erlang to a database because that's what I'm going to store the state in. And so he got himself a database and he wrote this and he wrote everything in one thread, more or less, putting it into the database, just like he'd always done in all other languages he'd ever seen. And then he asked a question on the Erlang list. And the guy said, excuse me, you don't need to put the state in the database because each process can remember its own state and because they're non-blocking and because you've got the concurrency. You design it in a completely different way. And that's what the problem is. Mm. It's, it's not the commas. It's not the syntax. It's not the recursion. It's, not the, it's this way of breaking down things into parallel processes and, and, and sort of designing the algorithms so, so that they can each work on their own private data sets. That's what the problem is. But the benefit is going to come when they distribute that over a multi-core or something like that, because they've done all this work that enables the parallelism and enables the fault tolerance and enables the scalability. So they don't have to go and do that later because they've already done it. And that's, a, that's, that's why Erlang, in a sense, is much more difficult to learn than all these other languages, because it involves a new way of thinking. Mm. Yeah, it's a rethink. What I find interesting that the method Joe described, which is, which is common today, that's exactly the same thing that the AXE the Ericsson switch, the AXE switch from the late seventies. That's how it was programmed. Right? So, so as a, te I just find it ironic. As a technology, it's a very old way of, of modeling the system. Um, and again, as Joe mentioned, that having process means I don't have to do that. Each process can, I can model that as a separate entity, um, processing its input, doing what needs needs to do, and things like this, without having to worry about any other processes in the system. And it's a complete, it's a complete rethink of how you design systems. And I think when, when people pr start programming Alexia, they're probably, they're probably the, the, the big mistake that everybody makes in Erlang is not using enough processes. And I, I suspect in Alexia it will be exactly the same, that they will tend to write sequential code instead of using lots of processes. Yeah. So far, uh, Jose, what have you seen there from, uh, from the people from the, the Ruby, the Rails, from, from that side? Uh, what have you seen, the things that they've bumped into? You have a, a definitely a better tap into that community than than any of us. Yeah, that's a tricky question. I'm not sure how uh, uh, exactly what I have seen. I'm <laughs> uh, <laughs> if 
I guess I'm uh, too much inside, but there is. So one of the, so exactly so based on this discussion, what we're, we're saying, right? Uh, people, there are a lot of people as I said, like coming from Ruby, uh, uh, and they are looking at it. They they are trying to to solve, or they they are trying. To, they are actually evaluating at this point. Like mostly, they are still evaluating the language, and they want to say like, well, I want to use this thing to build the the same things I built today. So uh, they are looking, they're going after the same tools, right? Very similar tools. So where is the, my MVC framework? And uh, where is the tool that does this, that I am used to? And, and there is, it's a good point for us to, to, to do uh, some, some kind of teaching, right? Like, no, look here, you're going to build a, uh, this thing differently, right? Like need to come with uh, a whole other approach. But at some other point, you say, "Well, this looks like a very good short term trade off," and they end up building uh, this particular trade off or something more similar to what they have today. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, so I guess there is this idea that you're going away from a given way of doing things to change whatever property of the system might be speed or scalability and you're trying to use the same exact design you had before just in a different language so what do you really expect to go differently if the system is the same just implemented in a different platform that's what's wrong if if you imagine you're going to do something like twitter or a messaging system if you start off in a conventional language you're going to say okay so you'll dimension the number of users per machine something like that you have to sort of scale them out distribute them to particular machines. And then you say, okay, so I'll dimension one machine can take care of 100,000 users. So what you would do in C or something like that, you said, well, okay, we'll have five active threads or as many threads as we've got uh, CPUs. Um, and then you'll make some goddamn awful locking and scheduling thing. And then you'll put all the 100,000 users in a database. And then when they're active, you quickly nip out of the database and... Um, do whatever you're going to do on scheduling it onto one of the threads. And when they've done it, stick it back in the database. And your your concerns will be getting things in and out of the database very quickly. But if you do it in Erlang, you can say, okay, we'd imagine it for 100,000 users. So start off, we have 100,000 parallel processes. Right. There's no database. You see, it's a completely different way of thinking. And that's the thing that's a bit difficult to get over. Well, let me step back a little bit from Erlang and Elixir. I, I talked with Neil Ford at OSCON and he gave a talk and it was aimed at Java folks. So people using the JVM and functional languages that run over there. And, you know, his talk was really just the first steps towards getting people out of that orthodox OOP uh, model. And and that's that's a much bigger conversation than, you know, choosing between Erlang and Elixir. Mm, yeah. It's the conversation we need to get going broadly. I'm hoping to get more of it at OSCON. Um, but my hope, and, and actually, I guess what I'm actually seeing people doing with Elixir is they're finding themselves having to get involved in that conversation and suddenly having to pay attention to things yes. that they'd heard about. They'd heard about processes. They sound cool. But how do I do that? Uh, yeah, that's that's a very good point. And it's a point that uh, when I have the, those discussions, I make it frequently. So we're talking about syntax, right? But every, and like some people, they feel like the syntax, maybe Erlang syntax is blocking them. And we were talking about syntax and semantics. But everyone that comes to Elixir, if they stay with Elixir, they don't stay because of the syntax. They stay because of the semantics. Right. Yes. Nobody say, oh, I love Elixir because the syntax is so great. Right. <laughs> they may say it like in the first two hours, 
But yeah. it, when you go back after one week, they're seeing oh, like those processes, actors, message passing, and they're excited about this, and that's why they stay, and that's why they want to explore further. The syntax is like the steak that you throw to the dog while you rob the house. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the same for everything else. So even when when I'm saying like you know. Um, People they are building similar tools, but when they're when they are creating even a simple project in Elixir, and it's something that I wanted since the day one. I wanted to make like very simple to have in language, so we have a, a, a library that ships with Elixir that allows you to create new projects. And you already create an application, uh, and it already comes with a supervisor and a server. But even if you don't use it, those things they are we are you know putting. Uh, time by time, a little bit in your head that, you know, there is this application thing, right? There's a supervisor thing. And then slowly they get used more and more with those things, right? And then they start to worry more about it and how they can use it. Because otherwise, if we want, if we want them to jump from like building applications in completely different way, it's just a too big of a jump, right? People, will, they will be scared to do it. Right, because it's just too much of a radical change. And uh, a lot of people can do that, but um, it usually requires a lot of vision for you to go from point A to point B and say, wait, when it's there in the future in point B, I know it's going to be better than what I have today. It requires mm. a lot of vision. And people, sometimes they, they don't feel comfortable with doing such huge jump. Yes. The other thing comment I have about Elixir, which I like very, very much, is the, the, the way you're going about it and the way the language is being designed. Um, I have to expand upon that a bit. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic that you co-develop the language with the writing of the books, so they're virtually coming out at the same time. And, and that, I think, is totally fantastic. Um, and as a book author, I'm astounded to see a community that listens to the book authors. It makes me very happy. No, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> So, so if you look at, and, and this has happened because of a technological change, I think Alexia must be one of the first languages that's developed sort of on the internet so, so that Yose can hold a dialogue with lots of other people. If you compare Erlang with, with Elixir and how it's developed, um, the conversations that, that Yose is having in the news groups and things uh, with, with a lot of talented people, that's a kind of equivalent to the conversations that Robert and I were having, um, you know, in, in 1985, 1986. But the difference is, I mean, we didn't have the benefit or, or of a wider community to, to discuss those ideas with. So so Robert and I would, would spend all day or you know, many hours each day talking about the semantics of Erlang and what it should be. But there was only the two of us doing it, and that was for technical reasons. We, we couldn't go in to sort of tap into the knowledge of, of loads of other people who are interested. But now that, and, and when Ruby was developed, it was done in you know, one guy's head, and Python and Perl and C and all those things were developed in, in very small communities. But Alexia is being developed... Um, with the new versions coming out on the net and with a lot of interested people being able to contribute to that conversation. And, and yours has done a fantastic job. I, I think, you know, I've thrown a few ideas at him on, on the, in various mails and things. And he's, he's more in the role of, of being able to ask people for help and to try out ideas and to act as a sort of cricketer. You know, we're sort of throwing balls at him and, and he's batting <laughs> them away and saying, well, that's a good idea and that's a bad idea. Because, you see, language idea isn't really about, it's not really right or wrong. It's about a set of, of, of design decisions that you make that sort of hang together, you know, I mean, and you can't really say that's a good language, that's a bad language. You can say that set of design 
criteria, that set of design decisions is good for that sort of application. So that's what Yosef's doing. He's, he's choosing between these different things, and I think he's doing an excellent job. Then you've got, you know, Dave and, and Simon writing books at the same time, and that is utterly fantastic because I've always thought, um, you know, I hate reading code and programs and things to find out what it's supposed to do. I want to read a book that tells me how it should work. <laughs> and now you've got a book, and it's about a year after, after the development. That will develop, that will, that will influence the language development in a way I haven't seen before. Because what happens there is if the authors cannot describe the feature of the language, if they try really hard and say, however we, however we t- try to describe this, it just doesn't come out right. You know, we can't describe it. Then you should bloody well remove it from the language. <laughs> you know, the stuff, because the stuff that you find difficult to explain to people will always be there. It will, if, if you can't find a, an easy way to explain it now, you won't be able to find an easy way to explain it in five to ten years' time. And you will spend the rest of your life trying to explain it to people. So if Dave and Simon can't explain it, remove it from your language, okay? <laughs> And that's absolutely great. So if you look at the airline case, it was, uh, I, don't know, I wrote it in this blog thing, it was, it was actually seven years after Airline was developed and the first book came out. And it was 14 years after Airline was developed and, and the first popular book came out. And you've, you've got that down to about a year. And that, that, that and the way it's designed is it's one of the first languages where that's happened. So it's extremely interesting to see what happens. Mm. That, that process, uh, Jose, so are, how are you keeping what is your process as as ideas come in as f- feedback comes in as far to to keep the thing beautiful and keep it from being a frankenstein you know like this sort of monster you know that i most so most of the time i just people they are uh giving feedback and uh i usually don't try to take immediate action even because we still have quite some time before we go to 1.0. Uh, so I usually let it in the back of my head and because, and, and then I try to get another information, uh, enough information or I wait uh, enough time until some moment uh, that's not specified in any way that I think, well, now is the time to change or try to incorporate this feedback from X, Y, and Z and try to tell a better story in this particular area of the language. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you do when Dave says, oh, I can't describe this stuff, or, or you read his text and he says, oh, that's awful. You know. <laughs> what do you do then? Do you, do you remove it from the language? <laughs> I I wait and... And it's there. I know that I need to act on it. So I have a list of things that I definitely need to check before we get to one zero, for example. And and I'm in touch uh, with Dave, for example. We are exchanging ideas on how we can solve that. But I don't try to act on it right now because maybe I have like two things and there is a third thing that's missing, but I don't know what is what it is yet. So I'm just waiting with the hope that this third thing is going to appear and then I can change this thing that's going to make uh, Dave happy. It's going to make me happier and it's going to make everyone happier. Yeah. So I, it's usually a, a mental log. Yeah, and I'm happy to say it hasn't been... Mostly we've asked you for like small additions. There was one thing to do with parentheses. Um, it really hasn't been that dramatic. There's... Oh, well, uh... An interesting I, I question. Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, I just uh, I was just asking Gilsey if he, if he'd put in the the so that it was in my blog. I said you can't you can't put when you're defining functions in modules inside a def, define it works different to to closures that you define in the shell. 
And I wanted the two to be the same because it's going to confuse everybody forever. Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, so the, the, what... Dave, when, when I was doing Erling, okay, so I wrote, I wrote the first draft of the Erling book and, and Dave Thomas was my editor. And he said... Um, he was kind of surprised because he used to, 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 to languages where what you type in the shell is exactly what you, you, you put in a file. So, so many languages, Lisp and things like that, and JavaScript, whatever you put in a file, you can just pipe into the shell and you get exactly the same results. And it's not true in Erlang. And the last time I looked at Alexia, it wasn't true in Alexia. And, and he said, well, why is this? You know, it'll just confuse people forever. And I just said, well, sort of it's like that. And, and we sort of passed over it. But, but it was wrong. I mean, in fact, it's a... It's, it's a fault in Erlang's design that, that what, what, what you put in the module, you can't put in the shell. But and, the, and it's the same in Alexia. So. There is a question about that where what you can say is either the explanation is not right or the language is not right. And someone on IRC described to me that your Erlang shell is not really a shell. It's an interactor. The same thing you get in Prolog. And there's a running system and what you can do is discuss with it, but it's not a readable print loop you get as usually. And if but I think frame should... thi- yeah, but if, we, if you frame things that way, uh, I don't think that the expectation is going to be necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean either that you couldn't have a shell that goes with it. But no, the early shell that we had it common, is not really shell. The most yeah. common reaction to things in my book and on, on the all the Erlang mailing lists and forever, the most common error people make is they, they see some code in a module because they're reading modules to figure out how stuff works and they cut and paste it into the shell and it doesn't work. That's the most common error they make, but they don't. Yeah, but they're, they're, not, they're only going to, not going to make the error more than once or twice, right? Oh, they do it. Yeah, well, yes, but a hundred thousand people doing it once or twice is two hundred thousand queries. <laughs> yeah, but they themselves do once or twice. So Unfor- here I have to... Unfortunately, I mean, do you want to? You know, it'll be on. It'll be on uh, travel. Oh, what's that site where you post programming problems? It'll be there forever. <laughs> Stack Overflow. Yeah, Stack Overflow. Why yeah. can't I post it all and you can't post it? Because you can't. That's the answer. Well, yeah, I agree with I'm... Joe, absolutely. That's that's not a valid answer. Like 10 years into using Erlang, it still annoys me that I can't create a function in the shell. Um, um, yeah. That the shell is this limited environment. Every Literally almost every time I sit down to use the shell, I think to myself, why is this so limited? Why is it not like every yeah, I mean, shell? So that's, that's not twice for you then, Eric. No, it's three times. Yeah, I can't count. Just to say they're different. You, you write functions in the module and you enter expressions in the shell and they're different. And that's just it. That's no, I, it. I know, I know, Robert, but... but yes, I know. But unfortunately... I, I wrote a blog on Alexia and I, I, I formulated something which I hadn't thought of before, but I said it was called The Three Laws of Programming Language Design. I've got it in front of me, and I rather like what I wrote. Because he said, what you get right, nobody, you know, if you get something right, well, nobody will ever mention it, okay? Nobody will, nobody will mention it. So concurrency in the link mechanism, the error handling in Erlang, is right, and hardly anybody bothers to mention it, you see. What you get wrong, people will bitch about it. We probably could say that we got strings, well, I'm not going to say we got strings wrong, but it was... Um, no, we didn't. No, okay. It was misunderstood a lot, Okay. The stuff that is difficult to understand, you will have to explain to people over and over and over again. Okay, so I just have to ask, you know, authors of books and and designers of programs, do you want to spend the rest of your life explaining over and over and over and over again why it behaves as it does? Or do you want to change it so that you won't have to explain it over and over again? It's a design decision. You can design the shell so that you can't. Cut and paste stuff from. Well, the, the other question, the, the other solution is just to get popular enough that p- 
people expect the thing you did to be the standard, and then everyone else has to correct whatever they're doing. Well, yeah. The, the trouble, the trouble in, in Erlang is that, um, okay, you could, well, you can. I mean, Lexi does it define modules in the shell, but you can't sort of define um, functions. Because if I mean the way the way the code oh. code is handled now, Lang, is that functions are part of a module, and you can and yeah. the whole unit of working is with the module. Right, but so, you I mean, could, but all but that needs is a, a, an open. I mean, we've got a, a thing that opens a module. But all you need in the shell would be a closed module statement, and then, and then they would be the same. Yeah, but then you're still yeah. not doing it. You've got no scope. Really you don't know, when you yeah, define things not, in the shell, you don't know which module they're in. But you could define a sort of pseudo module called shell, and if you define a fun in there, it's actually a function inside a module called shell or something, yeah, whatever. That's exactly it. You just need a, um, you just need some way to set kind of the current module on the shell and define <laughs> functions in the context of that module. And we've already got functions in the shell in Erlang, at least, that where um, where we where the functions interact on the environment. Adding a couple of extra functions to manipulate the the current module is is not Tricky. that difficult, right? But so then, that was wrong well, well, actually, actually, I, 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 I'll, I'll be different here. I, I actually <laughs> prefer I actually prefer writing my functions in a module because then I've got the full power of the editor I'm using, Emacs, to do all this stuff, right? And if I'm entering them in the shell, um, the actual code I write is going to look pretty um, uh, oh, no, the, 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 the trouble is you can't raw compared to what I do in the module. I mean, I think it's the other way around. I think the problem with modules is you can't evaluate functions inside them. That's the problem. Because if you could, you could do partial evaluation. Well, I, I, well, so, I, I use LFE and have a macro package. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 the, way you, that's the way, that's the way you do it in a real language, right? Same for me and, and, and Joxa. Um, yeah. But Robert, I write code the exact same way you do. I spend ninety-five percent of my time in uh, in Erlang. I mean, I'm sorry, in Emacs, writing code, whether it be Elixir or Erlang, interact and letting Emacs interact on the back end for me. But there's some not insignificant amount of time when I'm testing things out in the shell that I'm not completely sure are going to work so i'm writing funk or not, i'm not writing in, in lisp or or, or or python or ruby or something with a full featured uh interactive no, REPL. i'm i'm doing that right in erlang i don't well i don't Sorry, go ahead. Show. <laughs> so, so I, write, I write everything in emacs and i type make <laughs> so uh the thing is that if in order to make it work uh i think both erlang and elixir we are going to break user expectations at some point I don't think the way things are today, we can not break user expectations. For example, let's take Erlang. I think that if we allowed people to let, if we could have this idea of an open module uh, in, in the shell, there is something that the user will try to, to use, like let's say uh, code uh, uh, parse transform, right? That's not going to work because you don't have the whole module, right? So the if if we try to make something like this at some point it's going to break the expectation at mm. some point it's going to leak that it's a hacker around with a module half open and in elixir i think it will be easier because for example we have something called uh before compile which is a callback that we execute uh before the module is being compiled which could you allows you to do things that would be able to do with a parse transform right and then if we, people think that they are really inside a module Right, but since this module is never closed, there is some functionality that I use that depends on this before compile, but it's never actually compiled because it never closes, right? And then what they are going to have is that they're going to have 
uh, issue that's much harder to track the, track down and much harder to understand. So that's one that's kind of my perspective why mm. I didn't allow you to define functions outside of a module uh, in the shell because at some point in some way that expectation is going to break and it's it's going to bite you. Yeah, I mean they're going to write code which then calls back the shell, which again calls the shell module. If you're if you're writing it, mm. that'd be natural. To do that, and um, we want to pass the shell modules as as a as a callback module to something. And when, if you don't, if you haven't defined the whole module in one sense, it doesn't really exist. Right? I mean, so if you're doing it, so don't do it that way. Right? Compile the module every time you add, recompile the module, and reload it every time you add a function to it, or every time you change yeah. it. Make it a real first class module. Yeah, but the trouble with that is. That that reloading affects affects the run the runtime system. So if if you if you've got a number of processes running there, and you reload the thing, then then you suddenly start killing processes. And, so really, and my, point, my point is that none of them are. Uh, it might be a decent solution, but you're, you're going to get confusion somewhere, right? From, yeah, fair enough. But really, what enough. you you want are some introspection facilities. I mean, in Erlang doesn't have module. You really want say modules a list of funds. Um, and, and then you want list of funds to module and, and things like that. So, so you can introspect and, and sort of mm. you, you can't take modules to pieces and, and sort of tinker with them. And I mean, the way you can in Lisp, you, you take something out and you, you add a wrapper for debugging, you put it back in again. And, and that you can't do that do, sort of metaprogramming. You, you could do it fairly easily given that you have access to a compiler in Erlang, uh, except for the entire oh, yeah, yeah, point where you, you could be trying to put closures inside of a module and then the environment just doesn't work the same anymore mm. and that you get that problem. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. As I say, I'm I'm used to it now. So this is this is how I think with interacting with systems. So it's, I don't I don't see it as a problem. Oh, I just think it's a yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I, I know. I know people ha have that, have see that 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 the Erlang shell does not does not act in the same way other shells do no it's uh, not it's not something like that i would like to do in modules what i mean I, I i i can't say sort of x is outside the function definition i can't say x is three times four and then just use the x inside the next function definition which seems a perfectly reasonable thing to do well but you can do in the well, shell the question is, question is when's that going to be done right at compile three time times. at compile time okay yeah mm. then you could do it <laughs> I mean, I have a very limited macro. You know, I can't actually do anything. I can just expand things. I can't perform computations and macros. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. If macros, all go away. But um... I, I, I will freely admit that the Erlang macro package is a big hack. <laughs> On macros, this is uh, this is that's a good segue. Uh, uh, yeah. Macros uh, in Erlang, you know, we can have like our question mark module, and we can do all the stuff that we do inside of EUnit. How does uh, with with Elixir? Uh, how how has that been extended? Uh, and can you tell us a bit about uh, how where it goes beyond what we're used to? So we're all Erlang developers listening to this. Tell us what all Elixir gives us. And, and okay, uh, so there we have two main things. Uh, one of them is that you you actually so Erlang macros is kind of substitution, right? What you have on the side is substituted as is. Well, where you're calling that, uh, when you're calling that macro. And in Elixir, the macro is actually a code that you run, a code that you write, and we run it for you at compilation time. And you receive as argument the structure 
of uh, the code you pass this argument to the mackerel, the representation of that code. So uh, what we can do with, uh, with this, for example, is that, so we have if, uh, which like traditional languages, if it's implemented as a macro, as an Elixir macro, and it simply transforms everything to a case, right? So we we can we can receive the code and you can transform it in different ways, and uh, that's how our macros work. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And the second thing, it's hygiene. If, for example, if in in Erlang uh, macro you you define a variable or you have a case, for example, you have a case in the macro and that case defines a variable. Uh, if you use that macro two times, right, you're going to have you're going to start getting a match because uh, the variable is exactly the same. And in our case, we have hygiene that allows uh, both for you to use the same macro uh, different times and the, the variables are not going to clobber. And mm. since macros cannot generate a bunch of variables, we don't want those variables to conflict with our, your variables, right? So if the macro defines that X is equal one and you have your own X in your code, you don't want your X to be overwritten. So I think those are the main two things we bring to the table. This process where you're doing the, the transfer, so uh, the code that you're getting, is this, are we talking about the level of it becoming like core Erlang at this point or, or like Erlang assembly or are we talking about this is still Elixir that you're, you're having and you're it, going through another parse? And, or, or, it's, could, it, yeah, great question. It's, it's still Elixir. So we have uh, okay. the kind of the Elixir abstract format, right, which okay. we just say it's our coded expressions. And that's what you get. And the representation, we try to be as straightforward as possible. So uh, people coming from Ruby, for example, we say that they see that our syntax is more regular than Ruby. And that's because uh, we, we need to map code to, to its internal representation. And the way Lisp does that is that what you see is like what you get, right? There are lists here, there is there. I didn't want to have a list because we already have Joxa, Awafi. So mm-hmm. I wanted to have a language that the translation from one place to the other was as straightforward as possible, right? So otherwise it gets too hard to use the macro system. Mm. No, it's so, Thank so you. you. So, so would you define it as kind of in between a lisp in terms of macros and the Erlang parse transforms, which do operate pretty much the way oh, it, you, you it, meant it, it, but the abstract representation is fairly well, well, the, ugly, the, I guess. There were two things. I mean, the, uh, we could have actually done it in lisp in Erlang. In fact, we could retro-engineer it back into Erlang. But, but uh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about writing parse transforms in, in Erlang is you have to know what the parse tree of, of Mm. of concrete right. Erlang is and you have right. to manipulate that directly and that's a total pain in the ass because you don't know you don't want to know what it is at all but but just introducing a quasi quote and, and the splice mechanism which Lisp has frees you from all that you don't need to know what the underlying syntax is and that makes it really easy the other thing is you can do I mean the the the, the one election you know you know like cooking you know these uh, celebrity chefs have their signature recipes well I think the Alexia signature program should be the, the, the macro package that, that, that figured out the, uh, a function to, to compute uh, MIME types of, of different file extensions. Because there's, there's just a, I don't know, 20 lines of code and it goes and fetches, it goes and fetches a, a big data file from, from some website that's got a, a description of all the MIME types. Then it transforms that into Alexia and compiles it. It's about 10 lines of code or something. Hmm. Absolutely wonderful and beautiful. I suppose we could st- we could Very steal nice. that macro idea and, and fit it we into could. Erlang. We actually, could. We could steal it, stick it into Erlang. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the the we can 
in Erlang, we could equally represent the Erlang terms with a much simpler representation too, and just, and have a quote. The mastery of the thing. A feature mentioned earlier, uh, the pipe forward, uh, is it, it's leveraging this metaprogramming bit here to do this, right? Uh, 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 sorry, which feature? The the pipe forward. Yeah. So. Yeah, so the pipe forward is, um, so in other functional languages, they implement that with curring, for example, is one mm-hmm. way to implement it. We don't have that in Elixir because we need the arity. Uh, so what we do is that uh, we've, we just translate, so the pipe forward is an operator. An operator for Elixir is just a function call as any other thing. It can either be a function call or a macro call. And in this case, it's a macro. So it's a macro that receives two arguments and we just transform it to be something else. And it's like the the very raw implementation for this would be like uh, eight lines of code. And then if you want to add some like nice messages, check some proper cases, it gets out, say like 15 lines of code, straightforward code. It, it, so I, I wanted to point that one out to to get a sense of what it would be like to try to pull it off. How would you even start tackling that in Erlang if you were going to have the the next version of Erlang that had you know where they're stealing ideas from from Elixir? Well, you just just got to change the Erlang parser a bit and then oh. sort of do something with the new pass forms that come in. You just have to introduce a back quote in macros and, and some semantic stuff. Yeah, the back the back quote wouldn't be too difficult. Doing basically doing it in the same way as, mm. as Elixir does. Mm. I mean, Elixir just allows you to write Elixir um, syntax in the macro, whereas if you're doing an Erlang parse transform, you have to you have to you actually mm. use the abstract syntax, which is what makes it difficult. So that that, that in itself wouldn't be too difficult to do. The mm. pipe forwards, I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked at those mm. right. Also, add character transform while you're at it to kind of transform the character stream before it gets to even being tokens. You could do even more fun things. <laughs> then, then we could start adding parentheses and shift the parentheses and put as <laughs> well. You know, move those useless commas this. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that that's so. One of the things you get a you get a bunch bunch of nice functionality functionality by having quotes and back quotes and being able to generate right. Uh, code easily without knowing the internal representation, but matching, but having an internal representation that's straightforward is also very, very important. So, and it allows you to do very nice things. So uh, one of the examples we have in Elixir is the assert macro for testing, right? So when you're testing Elixir code, we have the assert macro and we don't have like assert equal, assert match, assert this, assert that, because assert is a macro. So when you say like A equals equals B, the macro can look and say, oh, we are trying to compare two things. Mm. So it gets those things, right? And, and it sees that you are trying to do a comparison. And when there is a failure, we emit a nice failure for you without you having to be explicit about it, about without you having to say exactly what you're doing. And that's for like for the most operations, because we can just look into that and say, I know exactly what you're doing. You don't need to tell me. And I'm going to tell you a nice error report because we can get uh, this information. So this assert thing and what Joey said of compiling the MIME types and we use a similar trick for our Unicode. So we have like, you have a bunch of Unicode operations like down case, up case, get the category and they are very fast and there is no runtime overhead like trying to load your server or an ETS because at compilation time, we open up the Unicode files, we compile those to functions in 
in a module, right? With pattern matching and everything. And that's what we use. And it's just a pattern matching at runtime with the bytes that you want to upcase or downcase. Related to that, um, I have a question because Elixir uh, tried to provide all of these features, including using binaries underlying for strings and whatnot, before Erlang did it uh, in the first place. And as we go, Erlang is slowly adding these features. So there's going to be a switch to Unicode by default, and then there's going to be a bunch of maps. Uh, is there some kind of plan in Elixir to, I don't know, break the internal implementation to work with the new Erlang stuff that's going to come out, or you're not going to really going to keep your own implementation to avoid breaking some kind of compatibility? I know that right now you're not at version 1.0. Uh, so the question is also extends to after 1.0. When you, whenever you'll be providing these uh, more advanced feature, and then the Erlang VM catches up on there. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think it depends on at what level we are talking about the Erlang feature. So let's suppose that Erlang adds like a B string module that has a bunch of Unicode operations. Uh, at this point, I would say we are keeping the string module we have in Elixir because uh, a lot of people use it and. I don't think it would make sense to break the compatibility. And there are some functions that would probably map better to Alexia style. So I would leave it as it is. But all the other things related to Nicole, which is like being able to parse Alexir file or being able to parse like Erlang files with Unicode stuff, this doesn't affect us, right? Because it's related to Erlang own tooling. But uh, in general, I'm going to use your question to make it to a broader point, right? So in general, I say a lot, we don't, I have as a philosophy, we don't wrap Erlang stuff. So we, we don't wrap uh, an, an Erlang library just for wrapping it, right? Just so you can call it with uh, the Elixir module. And what basically what you're doing is delegating to Erlang. We say, like, don't do that, right? Just use the Erlang stuff. We, are, we want to work together. We are supposed to work together. And this is something that I also want to bring uh, community-wise uh, I want some people, I want eventually like people, uh, Elixir developers going to Erlang conferences because they're just amazing, right? The first time I've been to Erlang factory, it was just amazing. All the topics about distributed systems and it was like fantastic. And so that's why I want to keep things as close as we can. So, uh, and I'm being careful with a bunch of stuff too. I know that Erlang R17 uh, uh, is coming with maps. So I want to integrate maps nicely, uh, uh, with Alexir and not have segregation in this area too. So my approach is like to avoid segregation as much as we can. And uh, but sometimes if they are introducing a feature that comes much afterwards, I, I would probably re worry more about retaining compatibility unless it's uh, too big of a change uh, that would make the work much better together. On, on that line, have you looked at uh, taking things that were you, you were developing on the Elixir side and sending over as patches or pull requests over to, to Erlang? Yeah, I've, I already sent some patches, things, okay. things that I think, uh, I think that uh, are broken and we need to improve or things that... So one, one, I think the first patch I sent was to support, I think, file name or file lib wildcard. So we have the file lib wildcard, I think, that allows you to do glob. So but this it is your doesn't al path, right? Uh, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, so you can, can do globby and this kind of stuff and didn't allow star star, right? So I didn't want to implement the whole thing and maintain a completely separate thing. I just sent a patch to OTP so we can have uh, a star star and traverse directories recursively too. So where we can, uh, I am sending patches and if the OTP teams say like, oh, we'd like to have this too, I would very gladly send a patch too because it's less cold for me to maintain as well. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious, how much pain have you taken on with, you know, by changing some of the defaults or has it been just basically painless? Uh, like, for a module, like casing, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, modules versus the functions and then with strings, binaries versus, you know, the default and shadowing versus, you know, just each one of these things where it's like a like a little bit of a surprise for Erlang developers. They get into that. How many of those actually are burning you later or is it been pretty painless? It has been pretty painless, I, I would say, because we we don't go much crazy, right? We don't go that <laughs> crazy. So we add some stuff, but for example, um, the shadowing we do is just, we just compile later to static single assignment, which is uh, basically changing the variable names when we are to, uh, emitting the Erlang abstract format. And that's like, that's, you know, that's very little work if compared if I had to do everything from scratch, right? So it's, there is, I think this would be like the the most complicated thing in our compiler, probably this whole thing of doing the variables uh, shadowing because we need to consider case, receive, uh, how those work if you define a variable in a clause and not in the other. But it has been running stable when we have one bug or the other, but it's like, Give me fifteen minutes and I have the bug fixed. It's not, it's not really a pain. Yeah, but you, you compile Alexia down to Erlang, don't you? I, I compile to the Erlang abstract format. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't you don't go down to core. Yeah, it's, it's something I want to do eventually, but uh, I think uh, running, being able to run uh, Dialyzer and some of the tools we have today uh, in Erlang. Uh, like uh, cover and so on, yeah. being able to having those now, I I've treated as more important, and it will also force me uh, to stay closer to Erlang, which is something that I wanted to do in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And and maybe in two years, and I am a wiser man, we can remove those constraints, <laughs> and I know how to get the things we have in core and bring it to the language. So there are things that I want to have, for example. Uh, Today, like list comprehensions, they are implemented in Erlang abstract, Erlang abstract format uh, as their own format in the tree. Mm-hmm. But when it compiles down to core, it's just, uh, you know, just recursive functions and so on. And yeah. I really would like to have uh, more powerful list comprehensions in, in this case. I would like to, to be able to not only work with lists because we have this idea of enumerables, anything we can enumerate. So I would like to support that. It's one mm-hmm. of the things I'd like to have. Uh, there is some uh, nice papers from the Haskell community, like comprehensive comprehensions, which is about adding other operations like order by, order by, right, to mm-hmm. to to this. And it's something uh, maybe I'd like to experiment and have those two. And if I compile to core, I would be able to do those now today. Uh, so that's one of the things that we don't get, but uh, we can wait. 
and yeah, they yeah. Uh, well, I was asking. I mean, some of the problems Brian mentioned, um, they're they're sold. You sold if you go to McCaw. You don't have this problem of scoping because core is scoped and all this type of thing for it. Um, the funny thing you mentioned with dialyzer is that dialer, dialyzer actually works on core airline internally. Yep. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I did a very quick hack to test if I could run it on LFE code. And it worked. You just have to write, just have to change the the functions that parse the code and generate and generate the core to it. Unfortunately, dialyzer is is, is um, uh, written in, in a very very fixed way, so it only works in Erlang, and and you'd have to you have to re-implement the front end to, to make it um, configurable to which languages you'd want it to work on. Yeah. So, so present... sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll just say, yeah, I, I, I sort of mentioned that to Costas sometimes, and he says, well, c- well, come along with a patch and we'll put it in. And I sort of say, yeah, but you guys could write the patch in one hour. For me, it would take a week type of thing, and that's about as far as we get on the, on this discussion. But um, <laughs> th- that would solve the problem for me anyway, for, for LFE, because then, then, then I could run dialyzer and LFE code, which I would like to do. Yeah, we, we were could... even – we were even discussing about having a place in their language abstract format where we could would put the core expressions instead of the okay. language abstract format, mm-hmm. yeah. and then yeah. dialyzer would get it, would check from one place or the other. But I completely agree with the front end and how we format messages. Uh, we would need to change. Uh, we would need to to change those. But mm. uh, yeah. Question to throw at, at Eric here. Uh, I'm, I've been thinking about adoption, and I get lots of questions about, uh, hey, should I start learning Erlang or should I start learning Elixir? And so I, I basically say it doesn't really matter because the hard parts are the same. <laughs> you know, it's the same. It's the same. Uh, and so what, what's on the front, uh, you know, you'll, you'll find one or other that you like. And so they're, you know, it'll be easy to pick the other one up. But with, with Eric, so you have a language that you have written yourself. And you guys are using that language, right? And for production, for all of what you do, you're using Joxa, right? So, yeah. Um, so, I'm, so the startup I was working on is kind of um, slowed down. About okay. a year ago, I had to, I, my wife got pregnant and interns and pay. Okay. Start, <laughs> yeah. Start being interesting. But, um, but we were using it for production. That startup's still kind of going in the back burner. So for some value of production, the answer is, is yes. Okay. I, I was just kind of curious, like when you see something like this come along, what, what, how do you evaluate it? I mean, as being a person that's actually written a language that's out there, uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious. The, the calculation's got to be a little bit different about how you look at something than how I look at it, maybe, or maybe it's not. I don't know. Well, so it, it depends on the language. So with Joxa, one of the goals I had was to make a language that I could easily modify, regardless of if anyone ever picked it up, right? Mm. Um, the idea was that okay, it's it's you know. Total everything, including libraries, is about four thousand lines of code. I can maintain that without a problem and have no real impact on my on uh, my productivity, right? Right. right. Um, so in that situation, you know, it makes sense for me to use Joxa. Now, when it comes to to other languages where that is not possible, there's a lot of of factors that come into play. Now, between Joxa and Elixir, um, I think the biggest the biggest potential thing that that comes into play is for whatever reason, as wonderful as the Erlang community is, it's not the most inclusive of other language ideas, right? So we have this kind of dichotomy between um, Erlang and Elixir, at least for now, where if you're writing a system in Erlang, you're probably not going to depend on Elixir code. 
Whereas if you're writing a system in Elixir, you have this wonderful thing where you can depend on one or the other. But if you write something in Elixir, you're you're not going to have users from the Erlang community on it. So I I suspect when it comes to code, you actually want to um, you're going to use. It's not you're not learning code or you're putting it out there to the community or you're actually using it for your um, for your own system. I think that's the question that you have to answer before you choose um, Elixir or Erlang. That is, um, do you want this to be used across both communities, or do you want it to be, uh, or do you not mind if it's never used in the Erlang community, right? So, in the case of where you want you want to be used in both communities, you pretty much have to write it in Erlang. If you don't mind just being in the Elixir community, which is a huge proportion of stuff, I think, then Elixir is a great choice. And then there's all the other things when it comes to language, like um, do you, do you like Elixir? Do you like Erlang and all that kind of normal stuff? I think at this point, the, the question of community is a moot point. Elixir has a wonderful big community. There's <laughs> two books out. We don't have to worry about Elixir going away or doing something crazy, right? Those, those points are, are mute at, at this point. So I think the, that question of um, which community are you targeting is, the, is the, the main driving question for whether you choose Elixir or Erlang at this point. Actually, the question, can, can I call Elixir from Erlang? I know, I know I can do it the other way around, but it never occurred to me. <laughs> Absolutely, you can. And it's, it's, it's quite simple. You can't or you can? You can't. You can. You can. Okay. It would just be a beam, and, right? And, and, yeah, right. And as long as it's... You have, I have to compile the modules out. Oh, I compile them to beam modules outside. Yeah, they can Elixir, and then I just use, stick them in my. You can use your normal build tools to compile both Elixir and Erlang, and you can actually mix Elixir and Erlang in the same project oh, in the I same app without a problem. The only the only problem, and it's not a problem, is that you kind of have to do a mental mapping between the Elixir namespace in Elixir yeah, yeah, yeah. and the and the module name in Erlang because they're just a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah that 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 was my question. Uh, think, thinking about that is, if you're calling Elixir from Erlang, how, how do you handle the Elixir module? Well, and function names as well, too, I suppose. So the the function names they have no change whatsoever, and all Elixir modules they are prefixed with Elixir dot. So that's it. Okay. And and now since the dot was removed, you well. Actually, since we, our convention is camel case, you need to wrap them in single quote. So uh, mm. open single quote, elixir dot, string, mm. close single quote, and then you call it normally. It's a regular atom. Mm. Ooh, must try that. Uh, I have a related yeah. question about all the languages you guys have designed. So how did they deal with concepts such as NIFs, so natively implemented functions that call into C from Erlang? At that point, from from the Erlang virtual machine, is there any support for that in any of LFE, Joxa, Elixir, or whatever else? So for Joxa, at least, and I think it's true probably for all of the others. Um, NIF is a is an Erlang VM concept, right? It has very little to do with the the language itself. Um, mm. So Joxa, at the very least, you it, it just works the same way it works in in Erlang. You create your NIF, you call as if you were calling Erlang code, and it. Mm. And it just works. Yeah, there's an attribute, an attribute about onload, do whatever there, replace it with the actual myth call. That's, that's, that, I think, is just a normal attribute, isn't it? I haven't actually looked yeah. internally, but I'm just assuming that just becomes a normal attribute in, in, the, um, in the module. I haven't checked it. I suppose I have to check that. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's exactly it. It's just a regular attribute, and, and that's I, it. So, so as long as a module, in that case, supports declaring attributes you're going to be able to do that yeah 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 i'll be very surprised if we, if we couldn't do that and i mean seeing none of the languages 
uh, the other languages sort of create new data types. You can't really. I mean, there's no problem from inside the NIF of, of accessing the data structures. I mean, you just have tuples, lists, and atoms, or what have you. Right. So, uh, so there's no problem in there. You, you wouldn't really even notice the difference. They're just normal outline data structures that data structures that come in. So yeah, I don't exactly. see that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, once once you if when you design your language, you make the design decision that you want it to be compatible with the rest of Erlang. Um, then you you get sort of get all this for free. I mean, yes, you get limitations. You can't design new data types, but you you get the enormous benefit. You can work together with everything else, which I think weighs outweighs most things, right? I mean, if you did your own language on top of Erlang, which wasn't compatible with the rest of the Erlang system, <laughs> it, would be it would be basically unusable. Right? I mean, yeah, it, definitely. Yeah. That's uh, that's the first. So the first Alexander implementation said, "Well, let me try this. Let me try some ideas." Right? I was trying to push as far as I could, not let's say respecting the Erlang boundaries that uh, I could have, and it was like just completely unusable at the end of three, four months of exploration. It was just, you know, like you couldn't really hot code swap. If you wanted to hot code swap, you have to do like kind of three modules at the same time. It was really a Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you make that, that I mean, you, you, you sort of, yeah, you have to make that decision. Once you've made that, that sort of very much influences what you can and can't do in the language. And I mean, you can add, you can add features in your language, but they still have to map back to the Erlang side. I mean, I found a very simple case in LFE. I mean, coming from a Lisp environment, you want to use minus, you want to use minus inside the in names, right? That's how you separate words. That doesn't map cleanly across to Erlang, which uses underscore. So you, you want, from the Lisp point of view, it looks slightly strange. Right? Mm. And that's just well, just you just have to accept that. Otherwise, your code will not be properly be able to call things and. My my, if I'm writing a behavior, the callback has to be called handle underscore call. Otherwise, it doesn't work. I would much prefer to write handle um, hyphen call instead, but I can't do that. There was a suggestion, maybe or someone made a suggestion, maybe you could change all the hyphens to underscores. But then again, then you don't then you don't get what you see, which is, makes I think it's even worse. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's, it, you you make the design decision; it's compatible. Then you just have to live with it, and then. I mean, as I said, I think the benefits far outweigh any any of the problems. With OTP, are you doing anything at that level? Are you are you abstracting anything? Are you doing anything along the lines of Garrett's uh, E two uh, to have just sort of a different view? Or are you are you pretty much just straight up using uh, all of the behaviors that are built in and and the modules and uh, so you you have a few on top like strings and so on, but. But as far as the the things that people think of as OTP, like application, GenServe. So for Elixir, uh, we we have the you use the Erlang stuff. What the only thing we have is that we have convenience module that defines the callbacks for you. So you get more optional callbacks, right? So if you want to implement a GenServer, you 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 just need to implement like init and handle call and the okay. other ones we have the full values for them. That's all we do. We we don't provide any other kind of abstraction at this level. Uh, and there are people playing with libraries or having macros that uh, kind of try to hook everything because if you get a gen server, you need to 
write the, the handle call and then you need to write the front end function that's going to call that callback. And people, they have macros that kind of do both for you. And so you have like uh, much more concise gen servers, but we didn't, uh, we, we don't have that in Elixir. And the reason I, uh, for that, that we didn't take a step in this direction, it's because I think the abstraction leaks. You still need to know what needs to be generated at the end when you use the libraries. So I, I don't feel it, it makes sense because if the abstraction is leaking and you need to know the original way, I prefer that Elixir has the original way and then, uh, and then people, they, when they feel comfortable enough, they can give the next step and use uh, a better abstraction or something that will allow them to be more concise. So you mentioned okay. macros there. Do you start to see the kind of thing that Lisps have where every project has its own subset of the language that they define for the macros that makes it kind of hard to jump into any random project. Um, I haven't I haven't seen it yet. Uh, so we try to do some education in this area, like, and I think uh, other languages that were very influential in macros they do the same. Like, don't use macros if you don't want to, not just because you can change things completely. But because you you can simply do crazy stuff like define, you can skip the hygiene, right, and insert a bunch of variables in the user code. That's just insane. It's like, please don't do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, saw, I, saw, I saw your documentation. You're sort of warning warning people to avoid macros unless they really need it, right? And, uh, yeah, it's I, like, I agree. That's generally pretty, that's a sensible that's a sensible recommendation. Yeah, is the, they say it's the first rule of the macro club, right? Is don't write macros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that it, it can happen that you know people they they will come with their their own abstractions, and then when you jump into a project, you need to to face those abstractions, right? You need to understand those abstractions. But I don't think it it, it I don't think it would be much different from like a project that uses Ichu, right? Ichu is a set of new abstractions and you need to understand them. What is a Ichu task, right? You need to go there and understand that when you're jumping to other people's code. So, but I, I, I definitely agree that it allows people if they want and they want to completely ignore every warning you put in front of them, they can just go crazy and write very crazy stuff. So if we, we could just now pick up and talk a bit about uh, community and how a conversation we had a few podcasts back was about how the Ruby community seems to get a lot right as far as how they organize and how they uh, just on a social level. And, uh, and so how Elixir, this interest that we're getting where people are coming from Ruby, they're coming from the closure community. Interestingly, uh, I'm seeing a lot of people from that community uh, hopping over. Could we talk some about that? Did you want to lead off Simon? Uh, did you have particular yeah. questions or? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Jose started things off really, really well. I mean, it's a, it's a welcoming community. There's documentation that's clearly meant for a wide group of people. Um, the, the the community gets that it doesn't have all of the answers yet, so the the mailing list conversation is pretty much always useful. So, like on all of those levels, things are going really, really well. I'm hoping that we can keep this kind of 
we keep bringing in new people from other places, and I'm, I'm having fun watching people who I used to know through XML or through Ruby or through other places. They're all turning up in Elixir, and I, I, I just love the magnetism. Mm. We've we've had a thing at uh, at Nash FP where last year we we did uh, a bit of Erlang school, and it was really nice how. One month in, people uh, once they got past the the basics of the language, the conversation became about distributed computing concepts. And we're doing another round of Erlang School this summer. And interestingly, after we had the first week or the first month of uh, around language basics, uh, a lot of people started jumping in, and we had a mix of half Erlang developers and half Elixir developers. And these were people that had never been part of Nash FP, but they were coming in because of this. And we're quickly past the syntax and the language parts again. And we're now we're talking about distributed computing. <laughs> so I, I just, wow, I, love, awesome. I love that, you know, the conversation's all about causality and all the sort of things that, that Chris uh, Micklejohn talks about on the distributed podcast. And uh, so that, that's, <laughs> you know, which is really nice. Uh, yeah, uh, that that's exactly my feelings when I, I've been to the first Lang factory. I was like, whoa, I know nothing of this, but I feel great. <laughs> it was uh it was really, really interesting. And I I am it's something that I am like looking forward to hear people talking about when you know people they are they have not explored this area yet. And when they come and they start to hear out of it and go to the talks, they'll be very impressed too. And that will be very interesting. Thinking of sort of the rosy, you know, the, the rosy future, you know, like the, the, how, how this could really work out. I, I'd love to hear what, uh, what Robert and Joe and, and, and what everyone actually thinks uh, will, will happen five years. I know fortune telling is, uh, is, a, is a bad game, especially when you're being recorded, but uh, you know, more, more or less of what you would like to see happen rather than what you think you know, for sure is going to happen. Uh, just with... Uh, with Erlang generally or Elixir? Well, Erlang and, uh, and then Elixir, uh, the, 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 all the excitement, interest around there, and how, how will this all play out? How will, this, how will these work together, and, and what's this community going to look like, maybe? Or what would you like to see happen, I guess, is really more the question. I, can I answer that a bit? Yes, um, yes, please. I, I, I think one of the... I, I don't think programming languages need to change if hardware doesn't change. Um, because whenever you make a sort of change in hardware, um, then you sort of invent new programming languages to program that hardware. Hmm. And so, and so um, Erlang's kind of had a little jump forwards when multi-cores came along. I mean, Erlang had been sitting, sitting around for a long time, but um, um, I, think, I think that's still the case, actually, because the, the thing that looks to me to be very interesting is um, there's the been a sort of... First of all, the multi-cores came, and, and then they went onto the desktop, and so a desktop computer might have a quad-core on or something like that. And we're seeing a regrouping now. Um, mm. And the thing, the thing that I've been very interested in are, are these very low-power ARM processors where, where you can put about you know, 24 or 48 of them on, onto a very small form factor and, 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 and then stick in, you know, 20 gig of memory and a terabyte, a terabyte disk, and make that into a little module that consumes about 30 watts or something. So I think I think we're going to see. Um, it's like the Chuck Moore. If you, if you make a if you make a sort of single rack mounted computer, I think it's Hewlett Packard make a, a module that will fit into there. Mm. You're probably going to have racks with uh, four or five hundred cores and t terabytes of RAM and, and lots of things. 
available fairly cheaply um, in the near future. Okay, and they're almost at the point where you're going to buy buy these modules at home, and then that's really going to pose the problem: how how the heck do you program those things? Because you've got to you've got to turn your program from monolithic serial programs in, into non-shared memory concurrent programs. And then I think there's going to be yet another sort of emergence of interest in, in the languages that do that properly. Well, there's only Erlang and Alexia that do it properly, so, so everybody's going to be forced to forced to use it if they want to program these things. Hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I would say, yeah, I, I would say 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 what one thing with Erlang. Um, the Erlang, the Erlang language is not really being hyped very much these days. It's, it's Actually, quite quiet about it, but it is being used quite a lot. I mean, we we see from from the business side that there are actually quite a few c- companies using Erlang, and uh, many don't say anything. I mean, which is not surprising. It's just a tool, so what I say, or a competitive <laughs> advantage that you don't want to talk about, or, uh... or a competitive advantage. Yeah, we we keep silent about. Cause... But, I, but I think if you look at if you look at say React's customer list, you know the number of companies using React who they probably don't even know they're using Erlang. Well, they don't. You know, that... No. But once they realize that, that, that if, if they write their application in Erlang and talk through React, there's no impedance mismatch in the data structures between what's in the database and their application. So it will go a bloody sight faster than if they were using SQL <laughs> or something. Then, then they'll, then they'll mm, start tweaking and sort of, ooh, that's an interesting yeah, idea. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as with um, RabbitMQ. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess most RabbitMQ users have absolutely no idea it's written in Erlang or interested in, in using it as Erlang. And I, I just think I know so Erlang is being used a lot, but we're we're not sort of. Well, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, we're not really much into, into the hype, the hype side of everything. It's the um, the least hyped language. It's the least well, hyped technology yeah. in the world, I think. Uh, it's yeah. underhyped. Or... I, I, I think there has been a phase about hype. Uh, I think it happened part of it for Erlang, the language itself, after there was this uh, Ruby blog post about Ruby is a ghetto or whatever. And then people <laughs> thinking Ruby doesn't scale, and then they went into Erlang. And then when Erlang didn't do exactly what they wanted, then they went to Clojure, and they went for, to Scala. And I think there's always a wave <laughs> of... Uh, language hipsters that just surf from language to language and will never really settle down. And Elixir probably has quite a few visits from them. Uh, The nice thing is that all of these visits at some point, a few of them will stay there and new programmers will just join the wave and whatever. So I think the question will be what happens once that wave has entirely quit Erlang and what will happen when that wave also has mostly quit Elixir and other languages? Because right now, both languages are still part of that cycle still a bit. Mm. Well, we, we've inherited the Swedish culture, you see, because in, in the Swedish culture, not allowed to hype things. And you can possibly stand there and say, well, Alex, ever so good. And it's, it's perfectly okay for other people to say that, of which we would then deny it. <laughs> it's, a non, it's a non-self-promoting culture. So it's very much against the cultural background of the language. Yes. Because <laughs> well, so everyone who's in that well, culture knows that that's. Actually I mean, we know it's wonderful. You know, but, but, uh, yeah. we, we can't say it. We can't say that. <laughs> yeah, and the fact think, we don't, and the fact we don't say that tells them it is right. <laughs> so, so, so it's backwards, completely backwards. Yes, I think yeah. Elixir's been similarly cautious. I mean, the two biggest bursts that I can remember are Joe's post on it generated huge interest, and Dave Thomas generated some huge interest as well. Um, it's not been the Elixir community jumping up and down and saying, hey, look at us. It's been, hey, we're working on something. And other people saying, that thing is cool. (laughs) 
Hmm. So, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, Joe's post it it made it made a huge impact, Joe. Uh, people, uh, I I'm tracking stuff. Right? I can see how it goes, and people they are uh, frequently mentioning your post, and um, it feels to them like some kind of approval, like Joe's well, creator of Erlang. Very he, <laughs> he he approves it, and pe- people use that to you know to approve themselves moving that direction too. Because if Joe did, I can do it. I I should certainly do it too, right? Um, and and of course, uh, the books, uh, both on Simon and Dave, they they cause a huge impact too. And I think people the there absolutely wonderful. I mean, and the timing is is brilliant. Uh, part of a community is about advocacy. Another part is, uh, you know, building the the actual product. And I'm curious, like, what would you like from the community, uh, Jose? Like, what would, how can we help? And how can, uh, the, how can the listeners help? Well, at this point, uh, the, the, the way to help is to just come, uh, try the language out, give your feedback, uh, what could improve, what could not improve, and then, and you just need to come with the mindset that you you need to still interface a lot with learning. And if you want to something novel or something that you feel like could be different, you need to write it yourself. Are, are there so, any bits of tooling in particular uh, that that are, are gaps, or is that not not a thing that's that seems to be missing? I mean, you have of course mix, and you have you know the, the line again like things, and you know. So, uh, is there anything out there to be like? I wish. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so one of the things that comes so a lot of people, uh, and both from my background, and I think from Dave Thomas. Uh, background and the audience we have access. They are uh, Rails. They are Rails developers, Ruby developers. And when they come, they are expecting for something similar, right? So, and this is something that we don't have. And and I made a huge mistake because it's something that I am after also because that's how my company makes money. <laughs> so it's it. I want to get there eventually. And I did mm-hmm. the mistake of doing a proof of concept and. Uh, Leaving it because I wanted to evaluate it myself as well, right? I want to see how well we can do those things and I and how well I can I can build that. Let's say a, a Chicago boss uh, equivalent right. to Elixir, yeah. right? And and I put it online so everyone is going there and using that thing, right? But I I don't want people to use that. I want to people go out of their way at this point and try to build it themselves and try to to see what novel ways they can bring, how well we can uh, interface that uh, with Erlang, or if there are like new concepts like CQRS that we can integrate integrate better in our environment because of how the virtual machine works, right? So, um, and and that's something that if we do it right, it's going to appease very much for that community. That community would really like to come and explore it further. So it would be a great way to attract um even more people because we, I, I think that uh, what people that are trying Elixir, they are still mostly early adopters, right? They are still mm-hmm. early adopters. Yes. So, well, well, very cool. Uh, I, I, this has been super good, <laughs> and I, I think we're probably now at the spot for our our picks of the week. Uh, who? Let's see. Would you like to go first, uh, Jose, on the on uh, your pick of the week? Oh, sure. Uh, I have. So one of the things I am uh, enjoying studying lately, it's Rx extensions. It's from 
from Microsoft.net. Uh, they actually they have a uh, very good amount of research coming from, so this from is like Microsoft. From Eric Meyer's group before he left yeah. and, and Matthew Padwasaki and that, that crew, right? Yeah, exactly. And they they have a bunch of interesting research. I'm uh, frequently reading their papers. They have uh, very nice ideas in F Sharp, for example. Um, and and it's nice because you have like C Sharp, and they are bringing slowly, slowly uh, functional constructs into into C Sharp. And sometimes it's nice to see how people react to that and how they embrace their ideas. So they have yes. Link, which is also fantastic. Yes. Um, so it's very interesting. And Rx is the thing I'm uh, exploring also. I also got a book on F-sharp to learn it for real, but I haven't read it yet. So I'm not going to pick it uh, as a pick, but I want to point to active extensions because uh, it's a way for you to treat, uh, it's basically functional active programming, right? So how can you treat events in a functional way? And the examples are are very cool, even more when they come to UI. So there is... Uh, a bunch of fantastic stuff in there. Uh, and my other two picks will be uh, the, let me get it here. It's the Introducing Elixir book from Simon I, uh, and the Programming Elixir book uh, from Dave Thomas from Pragmatic Programmers. So I'm sending the links for those two. And obviously, Elixir, but <laughs> I think this one is a given. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, those links will definitely be up there. Uh, oh, oh, great. How about you, Simon? Yeah, I'd like to uh, add to what Jose said. I'm I'm really happy with uh, introducing Elixir, but one of my favorite pieces is that David Eisenberg, my co-author, has been doing etudes. And etudes are exercises that are organized roughly according to chapter. They go a bit beyond. On the Erlang side, I've been watching those happening as meetups. On Elixir, I haven't seen it happen yet. But it's available for free. It's available on GitHub if you want to start making changes, suggestions, um, making it your own. So Etudes for Elixir would be my definite pick of the week. Ah, cool, cool. Uh, I think, Simon, I saw a meetup that they were doing the Etudes for Elixir. I Excellent. Think it, I think it popped out already at least once. Beautiful. Okay. Just going across my screen here. Uh, Robert, how, how about you? Do you have a pick of the week? Um, I'm going to be completely different. Okay. And I there's one site I love. It comes all the time, and that's XKCD. Uh huh. If I don't know if you, yes, if you know, yeah, it, it, it's fantastic. So, so that that's definitely my pick, right? And it keeps coming again. And now they've got a very nice one on privacy, with all these things coming up with, with yes. um, attacks on the privacy. So I, I think that's just a wonderful site. The burrito one uh, just the other day, right? Uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the exhibitionist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll link directly wonderful. to that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very, very cool. Uh, uh, how about you, Joe? Um, yeah, I've I'm got something completely different as well. Um, I, for a long time, I've been interested. Well, for a very long time, I'm, I'm interested in how you organise information on a, on a computer, and um, uh, I just like the idea of, of organising things in small cards. Um, you know, like. Imagine a, a Twitter entry of a little card, uh-huh. and and I see this sort of idea occurring again and again and again. So, various times I, I have I've been interested in systems that can manage these cards automatically or do things with them. So, so um, I've now found Trello.com, which is the latest in 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 the line of things which which actually 
work quite nicely. And, and there's a mobile phone app um, for them, uh, which just puts things onto little cards and, and uh, sort of organises them in a nice way. And it looks very much to me, it's, it comes out of can, uh, Kanban boards mm, yes. as a way of organising things. And, and I realised, in fact, they're the same as... It, I was very interested in Chandler, a system called Chandler, and, and a right. book called Dreaming in Code, if you've ever read it. It's, it's very good. And it's also rather like the tiddly wiki. So it's all these themes sort of, sort of, sort of join, join together. So I think I'm, I'm interested in this problem. It's actually a book, a chapter in my book for the Sherlock problem. Um, and, and that is the problem I'm trying to solve, and, and these are partial solutions to it, is, is when I have an idea... I, I sort of enter it into the computer somewhere in, in a little window, like imagine a Twitter window. And then I sort of, I can imagine myself, I want to press the Sherlock button and, and I want to find it the most similar idea on the planet to that. So have <laughs> yeah. I had a new idea uh, or, or where do I put it in, in, a, in a sort of hierarchy of, of ideas and organize, how do I organize it? Is it problem with files and directories is, is, um, Given that, you've, given that you've got an idea, you type it into a little window, and then you've got to make a design decision. You have to store it in a file. Well, you have to choose a name for the file. That's pretty difficult. And then you have to choose a directory to put the file in. And then you've got to choose a machine to put the directory in. And then you can never remember later. And, 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 and you know, I've got millions of files all over the place on hundreds of computers, and, and I can't find stuff. So, mm. so really, really, when you get a new idea, you don't want to put it in a separate file. You want to merge it in with an existing structure of information. So I've been looking at ways to do that for the last 20 years and, and slowly finding things that, that help you do that. So, so the latest one is Trello.com, and they've got a very nice mobile app, which unfortunately isn't open source. So... Um, if we put pressure on them, perhaps they'll make a, an open source. If anybody has got an Android application that can just take a little note and take a photo and then send it send it to a, a web address in a portable format, I, I would love to know how to do that because I'm not very good at programming Android. So, so my tip with Trello.com, I shall write it down here. Okay, cool. Yes. Oops. And the, sign up for their app and try it on the phone. I'd like to see that written in Erlang or a... Um, if anybody feels inspired, I'll write the server. If somebody could do the client bit in, a, in an Android device. Well, Here we go. Right, Trello. Trello.com. Trello, just like that. Cool. T-R-E-L-L-O. The mobile app is very good, actually. It helps you organize your ideas. It becomes addictive in about an hour. Well, cool. I, yeah, I've used it. It is good. Uh, uh, I mean, if you played with can, Kanban boards, they're quite mm-hmm. fun. I've, I've, I've written some Kanban board software myself in JavaScript. It seems a nice way to organize information. Mm-hmm. No, it's like uh, I have this... Um, uh, once you read the Chandler book and the Chandler design notes... Um, the, you, you have a, a good post on, on that as well, right? So that'd be a thing for us to add in the links on, on Chandler. Uh, uh, I haven't... I've got a lot it, more ideas than... than than in, that was in the post, okay. Well, uh, well, I, I think I think I, I, I I'm, I'm allergic to to-do lists and, and to-do list <laughs> generators because to-do lists assume that you know you, you make a list of ideas and then you tick them off and you know they're binary. Uh, you, you've done it or you haven't done it. But mm-hmm. I don't believe in that. Jobs aren't done or not done. So I believe in the triage system, which 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 um, uh, Chandler uses and the triage system this system used in hospitals where you you categorise. You know, in an emergency, an accident or something, or in, a, in a, the acute room in a hospital, the staff have three categories. It's the triage system. It's now, later, and, and done. 
Okay, so so now yeah. people get immediate attention because they've had a heart attack or something, and, and and then if it's not now, they're in later, and you only get to later when you've done all the now jobs, and and then and then you're in later, and then when 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 you when you finish later, you get to done, and you can be slussed out. Okay, but then what they realise, any one of those jobs can change state. Okay, so later could suddenly have a heart attack, and they're immediately put into now. <laughs> and, and, okay, so so you don't have a to do list that's binary. Okay. You, 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 you have jobs which you move between categories and, and then you have a log that you log what's going on within that within that job. And that's how actually how I think, you know, you come to work, what are I going to do now? Well, I've got to do that. You see, and, the, and then you move things from your now to your later list. And, and, uh, uh, and, and really, I'd like a I'd like a little thing in the background, sort of watching everything I type into these little notes. saying, well, hang on, you did that a year ago or three years ago or somebody else did that. It's called the NSA. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's no API to get the data back out. Uh, so. Yes, I mean, can't they? Why don't they just change it and <laughs> offer a backup service? Excuse me, I lost all my confidential terrorist mail a year ago. Can I have copies, please? How about you, Fred? What, what sort? Of, uh, what pick of the week do you have this week? All right, so I have two picks. Uh, the first of which is uh, Erlang bookmarks. That's a little wiki about all kinds of stuff that people from the community have been assembling in a directory for different things about the language. So they have um, entry points for a language for beginners. They have books, community exercises, uh, different kinds of documentation tools for debugging editors and whatever there is there. Second one I want to put in there, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago I might have suggested Recon, which is a library I was working on. And lately, I released version 1.1 of it. And uh, that version actually has something called Recon Alloc that talks about um, memory allocators in Erlang. And in the Erlang in Production podcast we had uh, a couple of months ago, I did mention having issues with binaries and whatnot and all kinds of research I was doing about that. And a lot of the things I found out were put inside that library with documentation about how to understand a bit of the allocators and a few functions that um, I have written with the help of Lucas Larson at Ericsson to make sure that you could find issues that you had with memory. And this is a little uh, module that you can drop in and use to do a quick analysis about the state of your memory allocators in Erlang. And, and Eric? I'm actually going to recommend Joe's A Week with, uh, with Elixir. I think it's absolutely worth reading, especially for current Erlang folks. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's great. This week, uh, I have two picks on Peep Code. Uh, there's an episode with, with Jose. Uh, it's uh, called Meet Elixir, and I'll have the link for that. And it, it's great. It has a really unconventional format. And it's very organic. I'm not sure how the whole session came together, but it looks like it was almost an accident. It just turned out well, <laughs> and they happened to be recording it. And, but it's just brilliant. Nice, nice flow through. And then there's a uh, blog series on uh, called Elixir is Not About Syntax. Uh, it's a great blog post. It's on uh, Hacking Devin Torres. Uh, and so I'll have a link for that as well. And those are my picks. And I tell you, I, I really like to say thank you to you all. This has been a treat. It's a double feature that we've done <laughs> recorded today. <laughs> and and thanks, thanks Jose, for, for doing all you've done. Thank you, Jose. Yes, very good. Yes. Definitely. Yes. I look forward to meeting you in London. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, who else is coming to, to London? Uh, I thought Dave, Dave uh, Thomas was coming. 
Yeah, he's coming. Uh, Robert, Brian, Simon, any of you coming yeah, and, too? And Bruce, Bruce Tate. I, I think so, but I don't know. I don't know yet. You know, I'll be up there too, but I'll be at a conference right next door. Uh, I'll be at NDC London, uh-huh. and so I'm going to try to sneak out of there. I'm, I'm giving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sneak over and see if I can hang out with you guys. Yeah. Uh, but uh, NDC London's going on, and I'm giving the uh, CQRS with Erlang talk. Uh, and so I, I mentioned that mm. just because uh, uh, the, the comment from uh, Jose earlier about how he'd like to see uh, CQRS and Elixir. Speaking of conferences. Uh... I've just given my confirmation that I will be at the airline factory like in Toronto, cool. uh, November 23. So, yeah, if, if we have Canadians or people in uh, the Great Lakes area in the United States that feel like crossing the border to go uh, factory lights, there's one that's going to be there also. I might be able to make that. Mm. Awesome. And, and we are we are having uh, – and then it's far away, so there is time for to planning. February uh, next year, here in Poland, we are going to have a Lambda Days, and they are just organizing it. They are putting the speakers up. Uh, Michal from Erling Solutions is organizing it. So if anyone wants to come visit Poland, that would be a good time, too. 